Great, thanks, guys. What a great song. I could, um, well, I reckon I could sing that for a couple of hours today. Just the truth in that, just the unbelievable strength that we get uh, in the times of uh, brokenness and hardship, just um, in reflecting and meditating upon Christ. It's just amazing how supernaturally um, God uh, pours his strength into our lives. So, um, terrific. Thanks for leading us, guys, in that way this morning. Really, really appreciated that. I want to say thanks also for all those who gathered last week at, um, at GVCF for uh, our combined prayer. It was really encouraging. There was about probably nearly 20 of us there for that couple of hours slot of praying between 2 and 4. So really want to thank everybody who turned up for that and came down. That was really encouraging. I think a great thing for all of the uh, combined churches to in, be involved in and to help out with uh, over that weekend. I think it's a great thing that we can pray that we can pray and uh, call upon God's name to uh, do great things in this greater Shepparton region, this Goulburn Valley area that we live. We want to see more and more people come to know Christ um, as uh, their personal Lord and Saviour. That looks all right. Is it Dan? Is it recording? I don't know. I, don't know. I, better, I better put Plan B into place just in case. Been having troubles um, with our recording of late, but give it a crack anyway, uh, Dan, and we'll see what happens. Trivia, you can put up that uh, photo of um, Jim Elliott if you want to, uh, Dan. Uh, on January the 8th, 1956, uh, Jim Elliott and four other missionaries were speared to death on a river sandbar in Central America, in Ecuador, by the people they were trying to reach with the gospel. Uh, leading up to this really dramatic event, uh, there was a tremendous amount of excitement and faith in Jesus Christ and the gospel. They were really confident about their work going forward in Central America. And uh, they were super excited uh, to see what Jesus would do and uh, what would happen. Jim Elliott himself had written this uh, famous quote some years beforehand. Uh, He is no fool to give away what he cannot keep, to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool to give away what he cannot keep, to gain what he cannot lose. Uh, Jim Elliott and these four men engaged in a real willingness uh, to suffer for the gospel And they did this with complete assurance of their life that it was hid with Christ in God. So they went there and gave their lives away, uh, not looking to do that. But when the time came, uh, they did it with complete confidence and assurance uh, in Christ. And uh, Paul's going to point us in that direction today as well, about this confidence and this assurance in Christ that we have uh, in suffering for the gospel. So if you've got your Bibles, uh, go to um, Philippians, where we are. And we're going to start reading from uh, verse, it's like 18b. You might see a bit of a break up in that verse in your Bible there. So it's like the last part of verse 18. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the, of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed. But with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honoured in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labour for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to, to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. 
so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Uh, Father, we thank you today that we can uh, gather in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, and we thank you, Holy Spirit, that you have inspired this word for us. And we pray now as we look at this passage here in Philippians, uh, that you would come and breathe life into these words. There's some really stirring stuff in the passage we've just read, Lord, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Lord, not only have we been called to believe in you, but also to suffer for you. Uh, Please help us this morning, Holy Spirit, as we think about this. And uh, see that you have given us an incredible confidence and assurance throughout uh, whatever suffering or hardship or trial you may call us into, uh, that we will have that confidence and assurance in you. Uh, I pray, Holy Spirit, do really, really good things in our heart and our mind and our souls today, that Jesus will be made larger and larger, and we will be filled more and more with his love. Uh, Lord, we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, pretty striking statements in that passage as you read through that. Uh, some stirring stuff there that Paul writes uh, for the Philippians. Probably Philippians 1.21 stands out as completely countercultural uh, to this world we live in, doesn't it? If you think about Philippians 1.21, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Uh, to think about that in the way of our culture, it's probably like a canoeist trying to canoe up Niagara Falls in the fact of going against the way this culture would think. To live is Christ and to die is gain. It doesn't make any sense at all in this world. Paul has this sort of other worldliness about him. There's something really significant about Paul here as he writes that. It's like he's possessed by something from another world that enables him to see everything differently in comparison to the culture that is around him and uh, where he lives and even as we read it today. Uh, You read to die is gain. Like there's something really good in death and you sort of think, maybe is that a misprint? Is that a misprint? Are you for real, Paul? Is that really what you've said there? And, and Paul has said that, to live is Christ and to die is gain. In many respects, uh, this passage is a continuation from where we were last week. Uh, Paul has this sort of red-hot passion that's sort of simmering within him. And it's such a strong force that he can't help but see it bubbling over and naturally just comes out of him as he writes Uh, these words and pens this letter uh, for the Philippians. From verse 12 onwards, (coughs) pardon me, uh, there's this treasure that Paul wants to keep sharing and showing to the Philippians here as he's writing to them. There's this treasure that he's found and discovered in Christ that he wants to actually communicate through, um, uh, through the pen, through the writing of this letter. And through this passage, uh, there's a couple of really strong themes that are running here as Paul is writing this. One is this confidence, assurance that Paul carries in Christ. Is this real confident assurance that he has there. And in the other is also a sense of trial or suffering 
as a believer living in this world uh, in the context of the gospel. We see that really clearly in verse 29 where Paul says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him but also suffer for his sake. It's not a real attractive verse that in many respects, is it? When you think about it, it's a very striking verse. Not only a striking verse, it's a hard verse. It's something hard to think about and grasp. The word granted there carries with it this sense that we've been favoured. Favoured. Not only to believe in Christ, but also to suffer for Christ. We've been favoured to suffer for Christ. And uh, as we go through, you'll hopefully begin to see uh, what that means. Uh, Suffering. Uh, It isn't an obscure idea in the Bible. It's not something that just shows up here in Philippians, sort of those bunch of verses. In many ways, uh, the believer is meant to expect it in some way uh, living in this world. Jesus told us to expect it. John 16, 33, he says this, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. Jesus says, in the world we will have tribulation. You might say, what's tribulation? Tribulation is another word for suffering or distress. In this world you will have distress or suffering or tribulation. Paul Paul also said it more than once, not just here in Philippians, he said it in other places as well. In Acts 14.22 he says this, strengthening the the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, sufferings, distress, we must enter the kingdom of God. Through many tribulations, through many sufferings, we'll enter the kingdom of God. And again in 2 Timothy, Paul says it again. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted not may be persecuted, will be persecuted. Varying levels there of how that may look. Much of the New Testament, believe it or not, is written to suffering Christians. Christians who are finding it very, very difficult. As we've said a few times, Christianity was not popular back in those days and was not accepted by the community at large around about them. Uh, It was seen as being disloyal to Caesar and the Roman government. And uh, for those very reasons, uh, they found it very, very difficult and they suffered for their faith simply for being Christians and living out their faith in that Roman world at that time. Uh, Paul himself is a prime example of suffering for uh, his faith. Uh, Again, where's he writing this letter from? He's in prison. He's chained up 24-7 to a prison imperial Roman soldier and uh, he can't do anything on his own. He's there because he's uh, being faithful to Christ and proclaiming the gospel and some people haven't liked it. Paul actually gives his, I guess you might call it his CV of suffering in 2 Corinthians as well. Here he's trying to talk to these Corinthians who are sort of saying there's these super apostles within the church and Paul's sort of saying, well, this is what an apostle really goes through. And he says this in verse uh, 22. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I'm talking like a madman. With far greater labours, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. 
Once I was stoned, and that's not marijuana or drugs, that's not, that's stones, okay? Once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from the other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? Doesn't seem all that desirable, that type of life, does it, when you read through like that? Seems pretty hard. Who wants that sort of life? Paul's not bragging or boasting in the... Um, boasting sense, he's just trying to communicate a message to his Corinthians, but he's giving us here, you know, you might say, is that just a snapshot of Paul's life? You look, that's happened probably over 30 plus years, but there's quite a bit of challenge through those 30 years and quite a bit of suffering. Now, Paul wasn't a sadist. He wasn't looking for that. He wasn't getting on the ship and saying, guys, can you please toss me over and I just want to float out here for a day or night? Paul wasn't like that at all. This was Paul's lot in life in sacrificing for the gospel. He remained faithful to Jesus and the gospel wasn't always received with open arms when he went out and proclaimed that. And what we can see there, Paul's life was often in danger. Who knows how many near-death experiences he had? Who knows what he's thinking when he's bobbing up and down out there in the Mediterranean Sea for a day and a night thinking, is this it? Is this it? Am I just going to eventually suck so much salt water in? I'm going to go to the bottom and is it all over? Who knows how many near-death experiences Paul had in his life serving Christ. Now, if there's something here we notice about Paul, he's not complaining. He's not complaining there when he gives that sort of CV through 2 Corinthians 11. He's not complaining at all about that. He's just saying, hey, this is what happened. And particularly in this passage we've just read here in Philippians, we actually have this strong sense of confidence or assurance that he has in Christ despite all these things that have happened to him. Paul says this, and I'll just sort of speak them quickly for you. In verse 19, he says, turn out for my deliverance. In verse 20, eager expectation. In verse 20 again, I will not be ashamed. In verse 20 again, with full courage as always. Verse 25, convinced of this. And in verse 28, not frightened in anything. Just some of those thoughts there of Paul's as he's writing them down in Philippians. He's got this confidence or this assurance despite the challenges that he's been through. There's no hint of Paul whinging there or complaining about what he's experienced. And it's staggering when you think about it, considering what he's been through. Paul has this unshakable confidence or he has this unshakable assurance despite all of that hardship. In Jesus Christ, Paul is able to bear up through all that suffering with a joyful confidence which defies the natural mind. And then he's able to come out in verse 21 and say this, For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Probably one of the most um, confounding statements of the Bible. But something incredibly real about what Paul says here when he says that. For to me to uh, to live is Christ and to die is gain. So, Today I want us to look at Paul's confidence here, or this assurance to see what drove that. How can he be like that and say that to die is gain? 
and then how that applies to us today here in 2018. Now, there's three things here that I think Paul really highlights for us that are provisions of God's grace that enabled Paul to persevere through all that challenge and suffering with such incredible confidence and assurance. The first one here is the prayers of others. The prayers of others. Paul says right there at the start of verse 19, he says this, For I know that through your prayers, and he goes on at the end of that verse, this will turn out for my deliverance, that through your prayers, this will turn out for my deliverance. Paul is saying through the prayers of other believers, God is giving him the grace to confidently suffer for Jesus Christ. Through the prayers of others, God is giving him this grace. Is that not a motivation for us to engage in prayer? Knowing that through the prayers of others, God gives grace for others to bear up. Is that not a motivation to keep continuing to pray for Ben and Megan as they put their plans in place to go to Central Asia? To keep praying for Rod Houston and open doors and any other things that God brings to her mind. That through the prayers of others, God is communicating his grace to help people bear up at this time. It's not just once we see this in the Bible, it's there, there time and time again. Uh, Peter the Apostle is suffering in jail. And here what we find in Acts chapter 12, and Peter's in this jail, it says this, uh, verse 5, So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. So Peter the Apostle is in prison. He's actually on death row. Herod has already killed James the Apostle, maybe just a few days beforehand or maybe a couple of weeks before this, and Peter's next in line to be, have his head taken off or whatever way they executed back then. The Passover's happened, and Herod's waiting for that to pass over, and then he's going to bring Peter out, and he's going to execute him to please the rest of the Jews to sort of get rid of the, some of these troublemakers here that have been uh, troubling the Jewish tr- uh, religion of the day. What do we see there? The church, the believers gather... Together for earnest prayer. We're told that there in the verse we've got up there, verse 5. They call upon God to deliver Peter. They're earnestly praying to God for, uh, for Peter to be delivered. The church gathers for this faith-fueled prayer, humble, intense, persistent prayer. And if you follow the story through here along in Acts chapter 12, you'll see that both the church and Peter were totally shocked. Totally shocked. Peter is amazed, and so are the believers, when he miraculously escapes. It's really nearly... I'd say there's a hint of comic in that story. Peter's sort of let out in a bit of a daze. He doesn't know where he is. All of a sudden, he just finds himself outside the gate. He says, well, how did this happen? And then he turns up at the prayer meeting, and the servant girl walks out because he's knocked on the door, and she gets the shock of her life and goes back and doesn't even let Peter into the house to sort of say, Peter's here. So it is a bit funny in a way, but I mean, miraculously, through the prayers, the earnest, intense prayers of others... Deliverance from God comes. It happens. But the fact is, God's rescue of Peter was ordained by the prayers through other believers. Other believers. I'm sure you've heard of the countless stories of people who have been woken in the middle of the night. And we all get woken in the middle of the night. But sometimes they're woken by just a thought, I need to pray for that person. I need to pray for that situation. Or it could be through the day. You could be wherever you are and you just get this thought, I need to pray for somebody or pray for something. And sometimes you hear the next day or sometimes weeks later of God's deliverance upon a person or a situation that was at the exact time or very close to the exact time that you felt led to pray. 
It's just amazing how God uses the prayers of others to communicate grace, to give strength in times of trial and times of suffering. Paul knows that. Paul knows that. That's why he's writing here to the Philippians. This is what God does. He ordains that strengthening grace will come through the prayers of others to help them confidently bear up with an assurance in the middle of really challenging stuff, particularly suffering. Here's the first one. The second source of confidence that Paul recognises here also is the spirit of Jesus Christ. Back in verse 19 again. For I know that through your prayers, we just spoke about that, and the help of the spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Now the spirit of Jesus Christ here means, uh, is or is the Holy Spirit that Paul's referring to. Um, I've just been reading a great book lately by Francis Chan called The Forgotten God. A really, really great book. Uh, it's a book about the Holy Spirit, and I can say it's been a, uh, a tremendously refreshing read again because we can so easily dismiss or forget about the work of the Holy Spirit somewhat. It seems like it's a, a difficult one to sort of get our heads around. That's why we sort of spoke about the Holy Spirit late, uh, late last year. We can easily dismiss or downplay the Holy Spirit's role in our life. Not for Paul, though. Not for Paul. Paul has this really robust and personal understanding that God dwells within him, within Paul, uh, 24 hours a day through the Holy Spirit. Paul is never alone. Even when he's in this prison cell, despite being chained up to a Roman guard who's possibly not a Christian at the time, Paul understands he's not alone in that prison cell. Paul knows that when he's being humiliated or ridiculed and victimised by unbelievers, he's not alone. Paul knows that when opposition comes his way and that everybody else has abandoned him, Paul knows he's not alone. Paul knows the Holy Spirit dwells within him. Jesus himself said it was good that he went away when he left this uh, earth from the disciples. He said, it's good that I go away. It's good that I go away because now I will send the Spirit to be with you and he will be with you forever. Jesus couldn't do that in the flesh. He couldn't be with every person at every time wherever they were. But now the Spirit indwells us at conversion and then he remains with us so that we have the Spirit of Jesus Christ with us wherever we go. I think sometimes this is something we easily forget. It does just slip out of our mind. It's not wrong that you get thoughts of loneliness or abandonment initially, but if you let yourself dwell and think on that feeling of uh, loneliness or abandonment, it's not going to help you. You've actually got to get your mind set right again to say, I'm not on my own. I'm actually um, indwelled by Jesus. I'm actually indwelled by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit. It's like we need to put a mental reminder there. And it, it may even pay to help just say to yourself, I'm not alone. I'm not alone. I'm not alone. I'm not alone. The Holy Spirit is with me. The Holy Spirit is with me. Confessing that truth that is absolutely rock solid. I'm not alone. Even when we feel like we may be alone right in the middle of the night or in the middle of a very, very difficult time. So when we're facing the challenge, we have to remember the Spirit is right there with me. And I tell you, when you reflect on that truth, when you reflect on the truth that you're not alone, that the Spirit is there with you no matter what you're facing, you will experience God's grace come in to give you what is required at that time to get through that ordeal, 
to give you the confidence and the assurance to stand up under whatever it may be. And this is what Paul has. He has this incredible awareness that the Spirit of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, is with him despite the suffering and the challenge he's facing. And he was sustained uh, with confidence uh, through that. The third provision here that Paul had that reminded the Philippians about was a unity of fellowship. A unity of fellowship. And Paul shows us that there in verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind and striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. One spirit, one mind and striving side by side. I think Paul's talking about there a oneness, a togetherness, a striving side by side, a unity. I think that Paul is in there. And unity in the body of Christ is an incredibly strong and encouraging space to live in. When people are in one accord, with one mind and one spirit, standing shoulder to shoulder, going through all sorts of stuff together, there's great strength there. There really, really is. If you try and do it on your own, okay, I can do this without the church, I can do this without my brothers and sisters in Christ, and take on whatever challenges you think uh, could be coming your way, and I can do this without the church... I guarantee you'll probably fall over flat. Because that's not what God has ordained. He's ordained that we do it together with one mind and one spirit, striving side by side or shoulder to shoulder together. Psalm 133 tells us here of the blessing of unity. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. This is the place to be when the suffering for the gospel comes upon us. Paul knows that we get relief from suffering, that we get confidence and assurance to go through this suffering when we get together and we are with others who are of the same mind, same spirit. To be with others who are facing similar situations and walking a similar journey to you is incredibly comforting, isn't it? You actually feel like a real affinity with that person. You feel like a real connection with the person because they're going through the same things you're going through, experiencing the similar things that you're experiencing. It's like a real sense of camaraderie, that they actually know the pain or the grief that I'm going through. They know the sort of stuff that I'm feeling or thinking. And when you get that, you get this sense of camaraderie or strength or this togetherness. Hey, these people really understand. They know what I'm going through. Actually, I don't feel alone in this anymore. I can actually get alongside this person and we can strengthen each other in this unity of fellowship. And this is the space in this unity of fellowship where we can really be honest with each other and open up how we are feeling, how we are struggling with what we're going through and share about the suffering potentially that's come our way this time. And this unity of fellowship gives us here um, this incredible strength that God ordains to allow us and enable us to push through and overcome and uh, see that. So for Paul, for Paul, this is paramount in his confidence. He knows just how vitally important it is for him to face suffering for the gospel in unity of fellowship, together to do it. So there's Paul's sort of three um, keys there you might want to call, or three things that he puts in place to say, how do I suffer um, and how do I face it with 
confidence and assurance and even with a, a level of joy through this suffering as well. And how can I then say this, you know, to, for me to live is to Christ and to die is gain. That's how Paul sees it, these things that underpin that and give him foundations. But how do we suffer? How do we suffer? Perhaps it can be a really confusing question for us today in 2018 because it's sort of not like what it was there back in AD, say, 50 or 60, roughly when Paul was writing this letter to the Philippians. It's a very different world to today in some respects. We, we live in a world that is working really hard to alleviate suffering wherever it can. Now, we have food aid programs that are all over the world looking to feed the suffering multitudes. We have uh, NGOs, non-government organisations, working all over the world to house displaced suffering refugees. They're trying to alleviate suffering. And they're all really good things to do, and they are very good things that Christians should be involved in to actually help out to alleviate that type of suffering. It's right and it's proper that we do that. We want to be involved there to alleviate that. Yet Paul says here, in verse 29, that it's been granted that we should suffer also for Jesus. It's been favoured to us that we should suffer for Jesus. So how do we suffer? What's Paul meaning here when he says, um, granted that you would suffer for Christ? The context here is that we are suffering for Jesus because there is all types of suffering in this world. But the potential suffering that Paul is talking about here is more uh, fixed in the context of Jesus Christ and the gospel. What's Paul doing? He's going about proclaiming that Jesus is the only way to God. People don't necessarily like what Paul is saying. It disturbs their lifestyle. They may feel convicted by the truth that Paul proclaims, but at the same time they don't want that truth either. So Paul suffers for that. He may suffer with ridicule or humiliation. He may be victimised for that, for his lifestyle and his message. He may even suffer worse, as uh, showing here in this letter. He's basically in prison and on death row. That's what Paul is at this point in time. But in a very similar sense, in a similar way, this same suffering, Jesus is calling Exchange Church into in 2018 and beyond may not be to the extreme level of what Paul is, but it may be to the extreme level that Paul is as well. We are called to lovingly, sensitively and truthfully proclaim Jesus into the community of Greater Shepherd and beyond. And some people won't like the message of the gospel. They don't want it. No matter how careful we are, no matter how sensitive we are, no matter how loving we are, some people may humiliate us or ridicule us for following Jesus. They may make fun of us. We may go into a conversation with a few friends or workmates and the conversation swings around perhaps to an event or a movie or something they're going to go to. Maybe it's that or a concert or something they want to go to. And you sort of think, yeah, that's probably not a good concert to go to. That's probably not a good movie to go to. Actually, it's on the same night that we have our Connect and Grow group Bible study as well. But the group of workmates, they are really, really keen to go to this event and they are talking it up like it's going to be fantastic and they are, hey, you're going to come along as well I'm trying to include you in the conversation what are you going to say? what am I going to say here? generally at that point the Holy Spirit reminds you about Jesus and you have this thought actually the same night is the Bible study group but if I say that, that look, am I, going to, I go to a Bible study that night, what are they going to think of me if I say that I go to a Bible study on that particular night? 
you're thinking in your mind, I want to go to a Bible study instead of go to the movie. What on the earth are they going to think if I say, look, oh, guys, I'll do Bible study that night. At that point, if you follow through with your Bible study answer, you'll probably feel a sense of suffering for Jesus. You sort of put yourself out there and begin to declare your colours. You're not um, shouting them down because they're going to a movie or a concert or event or whatever, but you actually just would prefer to go to a Bible study and do that. So, you know, at that point, am I going to say, will I go to the Bible study? And if you do, you're probably going to put yourself out in a bit of a limb. You'll probably sense then a, a small amount of suffering, particularly for the gospel. We've been called to that type of suffering. We haven't been called to sort of hide our light under a bushel. We've actually been called to bring the light out and let it shine. And that sometimes will put us in a difficult spot and may give us a small sense of suffering there. Suffering may be at other levels as well in 2018. Just maybe, just maybe, the Holy Spirit is convicting you about the lifestyle that you're living. Perhaps your lifestyle is all about fun, fashion, food and good times. That's what your life consists of. Maybe you're becoming a little bit indulgent there. You're still doing church and you're still doing your um, Bible reading and prayer and trying to grow as a believer. Maybe you're just filling your life up with fun, fashion, food and good times. Now, none of that's wrong in itself, but perhaps the Holy Spirit just comes along and begins to convict. Maybe the Holy Spirit just begins to speak into your heart about making some sacrifice there. Maybe I don't have to live life so indulgently. Maybe I don't have to actually keep chasing after these fashions. Maybe I don't have to keep chasing after these wonderful nights out at great restaurants or whatever it might be. Maybe if I did that, I might have some more money available I could actually put back into God's kingdom. There'll be a sense there that sometimes the Holy Spirit challenges us on those fronts. And when that happens, in the gospel context, there's a bit of suffering goes on there. It's another level. You know, you enjoy those good times and they're not wrong as such. But actually, now because of the conviction of the, of the Spirit, you might choose to actually sacrifice that so I can free up some more finance to put into God's kingdom. There's a sense of suffering also within that for the gospel as well. Suffering comes at other levels as well in 2018. Maybe you've got your life all mapped out with the perfect plan. You've got it all set out for the next 50 or 60 years. You know, I'm going to get married, I'm going to have a few kids, I'm going to have a great career, I'm going to take my family on some good holidays, I'm going to look forward to retirement, I'm going to serve in my local church, I've got to, I think I've got it all worked out what I'm going to do. Sounds like a really nice plan. Great plan. Family, kids, holidays, serving the church. Sounds really, really good. But along comes the Holy Spirit again. And the Spirit's got another plan. The Holy Spirit's got another desire that begins to place in your heart. And the Spirit begins to move in you and think, well, actually, maybe I don't need to get married. Maybe I don't need to have kids. Maybe I don't need some whiz-bang professional career. Actually, maybe I'm starting to feel a love for the people of Syria and Iraq. There's a desperate need for people to help rebuild those countries there after the civil war that's been there. I could go there, I could work, and I could also look to share Jesus with the people while I'm there. It'd be incredibly risky, incredibly risky and hard and challenging. But that's another level there of suffering as well for Jesus. 
we could turn our backs on the so-called perfect plan of Western culture of, you know, married, career, family, holiday, kids, good stuff, and we could place ourselves in, the, in uh, our lives in danger by serving Jesus in Iraq or Syria. Jesus will call some people to do that. Jesus will call some people to do that. Let's not forget, though, as we think about that and those sufferings here, Paul's got this confidence and this assurance he's got happening at the same time. Yes, we are called to suffer in in different ways and make sacrifice for the gospel at varying levels. But Paul has this confidence and joy in Christ that makes it worth it all. This is the theme that runs through here in this willingness for Paul to suffer for the gospel. And he does it with a confident assurance that no matter if it's life or death, Jesus is worth it all. Just throw that next photo up on the screen, Dan. Um, It's a picture here of uh, 23 missionaries from Korea. Uh, They're at the airport and they're about to set off on a missions trip in 2007. They're from the uh, Samuel Presbyterian Church in Korea. And they all look pretty happy, don't they? Some nice big smiles on their faces. Heading off on a short-term missions trip. Uh, they're boarding a flight for Afghanistan. And uh, they're going to minister to the Muslims over there in uh, 2007. Uh, while travelling by bus between Kandahar and Kabul, uh, their guide let two other locals on the bus with them. Uh, moments later, uh, the two locals who were Taliban began shooting and stopped the bus. Uh, these 23 Koreans now were kidnapped and held hostage by the Taliban. And, and intense negotiations went on over the next uh, weeks here as the Koreans were trying to be uh, released uh, from the Taliban. They were held in groups of two and three in remote farmhouses and cellars all around the mountains of uh, Afghanistan. Six days after the kidnapping, uh, two Korean males were executed by the Taliban. Things were getting very serious. Negotiations were continuing on. It didn't look good for the remaining 21 Koreans. They said if nothing is met by their demands, uh, they will start killing more people as the days went on. Negotiations continued and uh, miraculously, uh, one month later, the remaining 21 Koreans were released by the Taliban. But for that period of about six or seven weeks, uh, it was a harrowing ordeal of pain, grief and tremendous suffering for the gospel. When they started at the airport like that and ended probably from the furthest point of their minds how it would end with two of their people being executed. Francis Chan met one of these Koreans just a few months later in the USA. And as they talked to this, uh, as he talked to this former hostage, um, the Korean uh, uh, woman said this. She said, it's a really strange feeling But in some way, we wish we were back in captivity again. She said, that'll sound really strange to you, but in some ways, we wish we were back in captivity again. She said, those 42 days where we were held as a hostage were some of the sweetest moments of Christ we've ever experienced. Christ was unbelievably real to them during that intense drama of uh, being kidnapped by the Taliban. She said, in some ways, we want to go back there and have that fellowship again in the middle of intense suffering. You see, these Koreans have captured what Paul is talking about. 
They've captured here exactly what Paul is talking about in this passage today. Their assurance and their confidence in Christ in the middle of that suffering came from the many prayers that other believers had put up for them. And I imagine there was intense prayer going on all over the world for them at that time, from other believers. They had the presence of the Holy Spirit filling them with peace and assurance even when others were killed from within that group. And I imagine also they had an incredible unity of fellowship, even when they were in groups of two and three, spread across remote farmlands and hidden underground in cellars, in incredible life and death, moment by moment situations. They had this real intense unity of fellowship that um, brought up within them incredible confidence and assurance in Christ at that particular time. Friends, this same Jesus calls us into the same relationship with him today, just as those Koreans experienced then. A relationship with joy and suffering in him. It may be in really small ways. It may be just in small ways like a conversation where you need to perhaps put yourself out on a limb and you may feel a sense of suffering in that. But he may call you to Afghanistan. He may call you to go and minister to the Muslims and I pray that he does. I pray that he does. Because if he does, he will equip you with whatever is required to give you the grace to do that. Now you might say today, I couldn't do that. couldn't do that right now. I'm sure when those Koreans were at the airport, they couldn't do it either. It's amazing what God gives um, at the time of need. I heard a story uh, recently about Corey Ten Boom. She was um, with her family hiding Jews in the Second World War. And um, she said to her father when, when they were in this intense time of hiding, and she said, I'm not, she's not sure we can do this. I'm not sure I'm, where I'm going to get the strength from, Father, to hide these Jews continually in our attic each day. And the Gestapo coming around. And the father said to Corey Tim Boom, he says, look, when I send you on a train trip across the other side of the country, he says, when do I give you the money for the ticket to go on the train? So do, do I give it to you one month out or do I give it to you just when you're about to board the train to buy the ticket? And he says to me, hey, sorry, um, Corey says to his, her father, you're giving the money just for I'm about to buy the ticket to board the train. He said, that's right. He said, God will give you the grace when you need that grace. He won't give it to you two years out or ten years out. When you need that grace to board that train or to face that suffering, God will give you that grace at that time. To live is Christ and to die is gain. Let's pray. Father, thank you today uh, for this passage uh, in Philippians. Thank you, Lord, today for uh, just the amazing picture that we see of your work in Paul's life. And Paul, Lord, is, just, is a man just like us, no different to us. Uh, Paul is a man who's discovered who Christ is and he has this deep, intimate, personal relationship with him. Uh, Lord, today, please uh, please help us to grasp what Paul has and then to have this grown our own hearts in our own lives today, Lord. That, Lord, we may be called to suffer in many ways, perhaps small ways, perhaps intense ways. And I pray, God, that you'll give us the same confidence and the same assurance that you gave to Paul. That when that perhaps 
conversation comes and we have an opportunity to shine the light of the gospel, perhaps in a small way, he'll give us the grace to stand up and to shine that light. Well, perhaps there's others, even right now, you're beginning to stir their hearts to go into really, really hard places. God, I pray that you will fill them with the grace that's required to go to that hard place so they too will experience that confidence and that assurance that, Lord, through the prayers of others, through the Holy Spirit, through the togetherness, Lord, we have as a fellowship of believers, God, we will be equipped and enabled to reflect the glory of Jesus Christ no matter where we are and no matter what the cost. Do this work today, we pray, Holy Spirit, and do it for the glory of Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. Thanks, Caleb. If you want to come and um, just lead us around the community table, that'd be great. I haven't checked, but could the two who are handing out communion do that now? Boys, could you help me out? (laughs) So, the very first communion was a meal between Jesus' disciples and himself. And this happened immediately before he was led before the cross. And this is an interesting moment. Uh, one that Jesus was looking forward to sharing, which, uh, given that he knew what was going to follow, is sort of a strange thing. I think it was in Matthew, he said, I have eagerly desired to share this Passover with you before I suffer. So he knew what was coming. He knew what was going to follow that meal. And these are the words he used to explain the gravity of the moment to his disciples. He knew he was going to suffer and die on the cross. And yet he took this moment to impart on his followers a tradition that we have carried on to this day. Originally it seems that communion was to be part of a full meal. That whenever Christians gathered to eat, they could take a moment to remember what it was that Jesus had done for them. Now, today we don't have a meal But we do have this moment together, and the meaning is the same. If you are one here who calls on Jesus as your saviour, please take the bread and the cup and wait to eat and drink so we can do so together. If you're a little unsure about what all this means or you don't wish to take communion, uh, it's okay to let it pass by as it's handed around the room. Uh, The bread or the, the little biscuit that we have here is just a symbol but it represents Jesus' body broken. We can use this member, uh, this moment to remember how Jesus' body was broken for us on the day he died. It was broken as a punishment, a punishment that was inflicted on him. Thank you. But this was a punishment that was originally meant for us. It is this punishment that Jesus took for us so we won't have to endure it ourselves. Take this moment and think about this. It's sobering that this is the mercy that's been given to us 
But there's an incredible joy in this thought as well. Uh, Sometimes, if you've ever seen the movie The Passion of the Christ, it's a very graphic movie that goes to show uh, in in no small amount of detail what might have happened to Jesus on that particular day. And sometimes I'm tempted to sit here and think about some of the images from that movie as as we take communion, but... (laughs) This isn't a moment to remember about all the terrible things that will have happened to Christ on this day. It's not a moment to think about the gore and the horrible inflictions that happened to him. This is a moment where we can remember that we won't ever have to receive anything like that as punishment. That's been taken from us. This is how much God loved us, that he would give his own son to be broken for us. Let's take a moment now to eat together. And remember to be thankful for this mercy we've been given. A small cup of grape juice we have is a symbol that represents Jesus' blood that was spilled to cover our sins once and for all so that anyone calls on Jesus as their saviour you will never need to look back on your sins and wonder if you are really saved Uh, once daily sacrifices the spilling of animal blood had to be made to temporarily cover over the sins of God's people that is no longer needed when Jesus is in your life as your saviour His blood and his blood alone is enough to cover every sin and every misdeed permanently. Let's take this moment to drink together to remember his blood spilt for us and the grace we have as a result. Because of what Jesus has done, we are redeemed. And in that we can really have joy. Amen. Thanks, guys. Um, Please uh, feel free to stay for some...